Welcome to Antimatterpod, a Star Trek podcast where we discuss fashion, feminism, subtext and subspace, hosted by Annika and Liz. Today we're talking about Where No Man Has Gone Before, the second Star Trek pilot. And can I just say, I don't think this is really Star Trek. Like, there's no sense of optimism, there's no sense of wonder, it's just an action-adventure story dressed up in a Starfleet uniform. I think the franchise has really jumped the shark and this is just a blatant money grab. Well done. Well played. Good Thank job. You. Yeah. Uh, in seriousness, I don't really care for this episode. You? I mean, this is very indicative of my relationship with Star Trek, really, especially the mm. original series and even The Next Generation. I'm sorry, The Next Generation. <laughs> but... Um, I would say that I like the characters and I like the concept of what it was considering doing. Mm-hmm. But as a story, there isn't really a story <laughs> as far as <laughs> I can tell. It's just very nasty two people are transformed into something new and the the immediate reaction is to kill them and then they they do indeed turn out to be dangerous so it's okay that they were killed off it's uh, i mean it's very american yes from start to finish extremely american uh william shatner's captain kirk very all-american Ironic, given that he's Canadian, but there you have it. <laughs> I was going to say we should start with a synopsis, but you sort of already gave it. <laughs> the Enterprise goes to the edge of the galaxy where no one has gone before, but back in the 60s, we were still calling all of ourselves men. Yes. And they encounter what amounts to a, a sort of you know, one of those quote-unquote ion storms that seem Mm. to happen all the time in the original series a convenient energy field yes a convenient energy field outside the ship that zaps a bunch of crew members not just the two that are transformed it it zaps a bunch of them i think at least one person dies from the zapping yeah yeah something like half a dozen people die and i'm like wow that's a really big body count to start off it's a this whole show, like this it's episode, really is bloodthirsty. It, yes, a lot of people die in this episode. It's kind of shocking to me because I don't think of Star Trek as a show that just sort of kills off characters. Okay, there are a lot of guys in red shirts who'd like to take issue with that that suggestion, but I agree that we don't usually. Even those red shirts are not. They don't. There aren't as many deaths as has as the reputation is no i guess is what i mean most of them at least get names and a moment for mccoy or kirk to mourn them and yeah this is a really a really it's a really callous episode i think but but interesting there are so many things that are like blatantly pilot there are so many things that are blatantly let's redo the cage but different yeah and there are so many things that are so 70s. I know it was, <laughs> what, 66, 67? Yeah, 66. Like the whole ESP plot line. <laughs> it really just... felt like a precursor to what mainstream science fiction was going to be into in, in the 70s. Exactly. And I think I read a lot of early Anne McCaffrey and she was started out in the 60s and she was also very into the whole ESP human psychic phenomenon thing. So I think it was sort of bubbling under in, in the late 60s. But yeah, it's it's interesting that because of how they introduced Dr. Daner, mm. they really sort of conflate psychiatry and ESP. And yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting to me as a student. <laughs> it's like, hmm, okay. But again, mm. it just really feels dated. It doesn't feel... I don't think that they were making fun of either psychiatry or ESP. They were taking both of them pretty seriously. Mm. But 
it does not come across as it's it's just very dated there's nothing there's nothing modern about this episode (laughs) nothing it's aged poorly and not just because spock is saying one of my ancestors once married a human and sarek's like quit telling people i'm dead and spock's like sometimes i still hear his voice (laughs) see i was more upset on behalf of Amanda than than Sarek. I was like, damn Spock, that's cold to your mom. Maybe I might have a human relative, I guess, you know, many generations back. Or the woman who raised you. (laughs) Whatever. I have to admit that what, what I really enjoyed about this episode was Spock. Like, the episode opens with Kirk beating him at chess, and they're clearly good friends, but Kirk's BFF is Gary Mitchell, who is affected by this convenient energy field and becomes a god! Like a god. Like, like a god. god. <laughs> Which means he has to be killed. But Spock goes from zero to kill Mitchell in like 30 seconds. And I have to believe that this is all part of his elaborate scheme to, to replace Mitchell as Kirk's BFF. He doesn't even take a second to think about it. It's just Mitchell is no longer Mitchell and now we have to murder him. Yeah. That, that's it. That's the, that's the whole plot on Spock's end. Here is an unknown. We must kill it. That's, that's, it's really not very Star Trek. Elizabeth Daner. I love Elizabeth Daner. Mm. And it's much more the character that exists in my head than the (laughs) actual character. But I do think that she's well performed. I think Sally Kelly is outstanding. Well costumed. (laughs) And pants. Yeah, she gets pants. She looks so comfortable. I, I kept getting distracted by my idea that I definitely need to cosplay Elizabeth Daner and then I decided I would cosplay all of the mental health professionals in Star Trek which is four so <laughs> so I got I kept having to stop and pause and rewind a little bit so that I could go back with the things that I missed while thinking about that so yeah. that tells you how engrossing this storyline was but okay so this is what I say when I say that it, they really are definitely redoing parts of the cage, even though it's not the mm. cage. Uh, first of all, that they they call Elizabeth Daner a walking freezer unit, or I should say Gary Mitchell calls her a walking freezer unit. He sure does. And that could easily have been uh, said of number one, or the way that mm. number one is meant to have been portrayed. Yes. But then, much like member one, they had to immediately give her a love interest and say, you know, she's still a beautiful woman. And and once she meets this also super all-American guy, Gary Mitchell, who then, like, he's he's already this rough, tough, tumble, you know, all-American hero. And then he also becomes an intellectual powerhouse. So he's a perfect man. And obviously, she has a whole thing with him. And they become Adam and Eve, like, straight up. They're eating (laughs) apples over there in Eden. And he's creating, he's creating apple trees with his godlike powers. And they they drink from the fountain. And it's just like, whew. Yeah, this is not subtle. It's interesting that they clearly still wanted to play with those ideas of like Mm. the gender roles and how they can both confront them and also lean into them at the same time and this whole like manifest destiny kind of thing (laughs) they've got going which is is built into star trek i mean the space the final frontier speech is about manifest destiny so it's not like it's not like i'm crazy to be saying that but it's very visible. It's visible in this in this episode and in the way these relationships play out. The way that, mm. but Dana does get the big move of she does get to retain her humanity. Well, she's a lady. <laughs> I know she's a girl, so she gets to retain her humanity. But she still has to die because she did, you know, have a bunch of emotions and like. 
fell in love with the wrong guy, you know. So she still has to die. I maybe missed something, but I'm not sure why she died. Like, I didn't see her get hit or anything. Well, so... She fell over, but... I'm pretty sure she just, like, used too much of her powers. She, like, used her powers oh. against a god, like, like her own kind or whatever. So she had to be punished for that. I mean... Of course. If... I was watching this very closely, and I have to say, I do not believe that Gary Mitchell was killed by a bunch of rocks falling on him. <laughs> no! So, no. I think maybe they both faked their death, and they're still out there on, on, on fake Eden, you know, repopulating the godlike species. And you know what? Good on them. That's right. I, I have to admit it. that had I been writing this... Uh, I would have killed off Gary because clearly his ego is out of control and blah, blah, blah. But I would have let Elizabeth transcend into a, the, a next evolution and just go mm. off to explore the universe as this higher entity. And it would have been fine. Like the end of the first Star Trek. Yeah. Major. <laughs> yeah. And many other episodes of Star Trek, but... Yes, that's what I'm saying. The body cart is really high. They also, poor Kelso, like, uh, Kirk and who even knows what the doctor's name is, Piper. just uh, get sort of knocked out. But mm. for some reason, Lee Kelso is strangled. I know, and it's that's really pretty horrific. Time. Really graphic. I was just, wow. This is what I'm saying is that I think I like the characters or like what the characters could be I think is a better way of saying it because mm. now I'm just sitting here thinking about what was the relationship between Gary Mitchell and Lee Kelso that he f couldn't hurt Kirk but he had to strangle Kelso it's like what what exactly is going on here in this yeah in this ship you know I don't know how many years into the five-year mission they're at but I want to know more about these relationships. And it's sad because they're all dead. So, like, that's, that's why it was very piloty, but it was also, like, really strange that <laughs> the characters get that get the most backstory and, and, like, the characters that go on an arc at all are, like, dead. So, it's weird. I... Like, Kirk and Spock, you know, we like, especially Spock, because he had that ridiculous line... Uh, we we can't trust the psychiatrist because she feels and I don't, and so yeah. like that was very much. This is who Spock is as a character. You know, turn mm. to the audience and let me explain myself. Yes, and Kirk. You know, we got we got a good handle on Kirk uh, because we get sort of his background with Gary. He comes off as I'm friends with this Gary guy, but I'm also. Like, I was a nerd, you know? Yeah, he's, yeah. He was a nerd. He was not a jock at Starfleet. <laughs> and... I honestly feel like Kirk does go through an arc because, you know, he's introduced playing chess and winning and Gary talks about this long-haired stuff he used to read and we get this portrait of Kirk as the nerd who grew up in, to be a hard-ass instructor and is now the captain and all of that. And mm. I feel like in the end, he because he has to wrestle Gary Mitchell and get his shirt ripped in the end in Gary's death he has adopted some of Gary's gung-ho masculinity wait. wait so so you're saying that Kirk's arc in this episode is to become more masculine I think so yeah that's what you're saying I'm I mean distraught. you can read it that way <laughs> I I I just you know I get sort of protective of Captain Kirk. The Captain Kirk that exists in the minds of people who don't watch Star Trek. Yes. Who is more like Gary Mitchell, who is more yeah. ready to fight, who is more of a, you know, he isn't a nerd, who is a ladies' man, you know, with a girl in every port or whatever, not the type who almost marries his college girlfriend. Yeah. And... With whom he has to be set up because... <laughs> right, because he's not even going to date <laughs> otherwise. Yeah. It's always interesting to me that when you watch Star Trek, even the episodes where he does have a love interest, he's, he's 
He's never like a jerk to them. No, he's not sleazy. I mean, sometimes he is, but only because our ideas of how men and women right, interact yes. have changed. Right. He's not intentionally sleazy. So the idea that the first episode where we meet Captain Kirk wants him to be more like that guy that I'm always mm. telling people he's not really is kind of upsetting to me. Well, I don't I don't think he has become Gary Mitchell as, as such, but he's become a little more balanced if mm. that if that makes sense. He is trying to incorporate the best what he sees as the best of Gary into his own his own life and to honor him that way. And I think that's kind of cool. I don't really know how this plays out like if I could make this idea play out over the entire series but I just wish someone would do the same for Elizabeth Dana (laughs) hashtag Dr. Dana deserve better I mean hashtag all women in Star Trek deserve better yes just just gonna put it out there uh all women in sci-fi all Mm. women period (laughs) Can, can we talk about the poor yeoman whose name Kirk doesn't even remember Yeoman Smith? Yes. Uh, I, I read on Memory Alpha that she got the part, the actress got the part, because Jean Roddenberry wanted to sleep with her. Ugh, so. a shock. I know, She looks I like know. she's 15. Yeah, yeah, it really struck me. Like, Yeoman Colt was very, very youthful, like maybe 20 or so, and this girl is looks younger again. I'm sure she was an adult, but... Then you contrast both of them with Janice Rand, who I don't know how old Grace Lee Whitney was when she did the original series, but between the makeup and the style of filming and everything, she looks like she was in her 30s. And yeah, she's, it, it makes her seem less vulnerable. Not that she wasn't horribly vulnerable to every predator that came along, but I think casting someone that young in a Rand-type role would have been terrible. Yes, I mean, she honestly, she's just so fresh and right he doesn't remember her name he doesn't take her seriously and right after gary mitchell flirts with elizabeth daner and is shot down and then calls her (laughs) calls her like you know and and is like well there's something wrong with her not not i'm a scum we shouldn't be flirting with people on the bridge (laughs) but then they like start their their journey into the unknown and he takes yeoman smith's hand I know. like you're piloting the ship and then they like they start you know they're getting turbulence and he's like you're steering with his one hand like drop her hand okay Dude, right, right. what is wrong Dude, with you you can sexually harass your colleagues later it's just it was really oof Gary Mitchell does not come off as a good guy. <laughs> He's sort of the original sleazy <laughs> ladies' man type that you hate. He's the first iteration exactly. of that. Exactly. So it's kind of nice that he totally dies. Yeah, yeah. I am not sorry that Gary Mitchell dies. I think, you know, all this stuff about Kirk, you know, Fanon Kirk being Gary Mitchell makes me really sad that Into Darkness wasn't the remake of this episode because I think... That would have been really interesting in so terms good. of how Pine Kirk right. is perceived. And I was gonna say, especially yeah. since So so Pine Kirk, who's my preferred Kirk, mm. <laughs> just to make that very clear. Um and the only Kirk that I like have I only started defending Kirk after two thousand and nine. Right. Chris Pine, much like uh, his predecessors in the Tom Paris and and uh, Jonathan Archer and Trip, mm. whatever his last name is, Tucker Trinier, Tucker. Thank you, Trip Tucker, and you know that whole like ladies' man and Riker too, yeah. is that they're the the people like Jonathan Frakes and is is not actually a sleaze. Like, I mean, I don't know Jonathan Frakes personally, but everything that I do know about Jonathan Frakes, he's been married like 50 years to the same person. Yeah, yeah. And is a family man and seems to, you know, every time I've seen him in person, you know, he seems to interact well with people. I've never heard bad stories about Jonathan Frakes. 
Right. Stories are coming out, you know, about bad behaviour right. at conventions and so forth. We don't hear that about Jonathan Frakes. I haven't really heard that about any Star Trek Any actors, Star Trek actually. people. Right. But my point is that these, the, the, they write these characters that are these, like, sleazeballs. Like, mm. first season, Tom Paris is horrible. But yeah. he... By the end of first season already, they are moving him towards not being a sleazeball because Robbie Duncan McNeil can't even play it. Like, he, no. he, he's such a baby face. He's such, like, he comes off as a goofball. He can't be the ladies' man. He's just not any good at it. Chris Pine, who looks like a literal Ken doll and is, like, beautiful. Okay, Chris Pine should be able to play a sleazeball, but his Kirk is definitely not. His Kirk is so earnest and poignant and in into darkness he like sobs you know he's always showing his emotions he's flippant with women but even in that like uhura he had he has like this banter thing with uhura that by the second movie they are like besties and they're like siblings and there's this it's like he grows as a person because he knows her you know he becomes a better person and so it's it's almost why he that moment where he's peeking at what's a face in her underwear stands out so much because it is so and such contrast exactly. to what we've seen. Exactly. And Chris Pine also, everything I know, I don't know him personally. I wish he did. But <laughs> everything I've ever heard about Chris Pine is that he's amazing. And he's cer- certainly like post-Star Trek, if you look at his career, it seems to be about taking roles where he's like pointing at the woman and saying, look, she's better than me. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. That's, he that's what like he's really doing. Guy. With, with his white male gorgeous Ken doll privilege. So, mm. like, it's just, it's just, it's, it's so, it's so weird to me. It's so, like, like, uh, and so I would love, I would love to have a new Gary Mitchell and to have, like, a nuanced version of this story with Chris Pine Kirk. And, like, that's, mm. would be so much better. And we would get... Like, maybe maybe Gary Mitchell isn't horrible. <laughs> maybe he has nuance, too. Maybe? It's possible. But it could also be just as good if he was totally a sleazeball. And right. Kirk was like, yeah, I now, like, I, I grew up with this guy, but ew. <laughs> like, that, that would be good, and, too. And, and that's sort of the thing. Like, Robert Orchie, I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name, but the co-writer of Into Darkness was like, well, people were, were saying this is going to be a remake of Where No Man Has Gone Before, but we never even considered it because you just can't have a villain named Gary. <laughs> and I'm like, one, there is a lack of imagination there, but also this is clearly a guy who has never had to look at a corn-fed, corn-fed all-American white boy and see a threat. Yes. Yes. And, and so I think Gary Mitchell is a really interesting litmus test for perceptions of masculinity. It would have been such a stronger story, too. Yeah, because yeah. it would have been about 22nd, 22nd century men who are supposed mm. to be enlightened, who, who still have to deal with, who still have to grapple. And that would shine a spotlight on stuff like Kirk and the underwear ladies. Yeah, but because the people who were writing it were writing Kirk and the Underwear Ladies, they didn't like they didn't know. <laughs> they didn't understand right. that the spotlight needed to be shown. And not to make this about discovery, but I do keep in mind that Alex Kurtzman was also on that movie and he also did Fringe, which I love, but Fringe started out being about Olivia Dunham and then by the end was about Peter Bishop and he and Orchie did Sleepy Hollow, which started out being a bla- about a black woman and, as has come out in the last few weeks, treated her really, really badly before firing her from her own show. And so I don't know if this is something Kurtzman is directly responsible for, but it does mean that I kind of side-eye mm-hmm. Discovery and New Trek and its relationship with, you know, black people. <sighs> I mean, yeah. we've we've gone. I feel like we have discussed in detail how yeah, black people are still not being treated well on shows that are ostensibly about them in Star Trek. Right. 
So, um, I, I guess just because all the stuff about Sleepy Hollow came out and then I was watching this and thinking about Into Darkness and I just, a lot of fanboys really hate Kurtzman because he made a bad movie and I don't hate him but I don't think he is very good at being self-aware about racial dynamics on works he produces or gender dynamics. And neither is J.J. Abrams. So, mm, mm. so it, it's, you know, part of me is like, I get why people think that, like, if your only exposure to Star Trek is the Kelvin movies, I mm. understand the myth of Captain Kirk. Even though I don't think that Chris Pine is playing it that way, I still think that if that was your only exposure. Absolutely. I absolutely understand the uh, misconception. Absolutely, and it's it's easy. <laughs> yes, so it's, it's easy to osmose from mainstream perceptions and Shatner himself and the way Pine Kirk is written, and yeah, make that mistake. I saw this comment on Twitter that uh, William Shatner acts like he is Star Trek, and yeah. then someone responded. Well, he is, and we have to we have to honor him as the you know he and his show were first, and therefore we have to honor them as true Star Trek. And I was just like, Ugh. <laughs> because yeah, no, no, <laughs> because no, that's not how that works. That's not how any of this works. As the meme also, goes. if that were true, we would be honoring Jeffrey Hunter, who died many years ago, but still. Exactly. It's all, it's like the same, it's the kind of thing who, people who say that it is canon that mm. Gary Mitchell didn't know Captain Kirk's real middle name because James that's Rodriguez true. Kirk. But Discovery isn't canon. And it's like, that you, the, the amount of mental gymnastics you have to do to come to that conclusion is just... Yeah, yeah. Ugh. So, that's what I have to say about that. Speaking of discovery, uh, do you agree with my headcanon that Gary was a contemporary of Kirk and Tilly's at the Academy? I, I really like that. I kind of love the, the concept of a, you know, Tilly and Kirk vying for who's going to become captain first. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's been my thing since Tilly was introduced. Super, super into that. Um, and, but Tilly, you know... Went to the future, so Kirk won, but only because Tilly went to the future. Yeah, he won, but there's an asterisk. Exactly. <laughs> so I love I love to think about I love to think about the Academy in general. But mm -hmm. I love to think I about I know this about you. Yeah, I think even you have said, you know, that makes the the universe too small if everybody who we know also knows each other. But well, I'm thinking my more perspective. of the, the older, older, higher-ranked officers like Cat and Lorca and Pine, um, Pine, Pike and Jojo. <laughs> like I'm sure they overlapped, but I don't think they were necessarily like BFFs. Whereas, I feel like Tilly must have at least known Kirk and and Mitchell, and probably really hated Mitchell. Well, that's the thing is, I like the idea of Tilly and Kirk in honors classes. Mm. And Mitchell is like Kirk, Kirk's like roommate or something. Like they met, you know, separate from classes because yeah. Mitchell is in the you know regular guy <laughs> classes. <Yeah. laughs> He's not in the yes. fast track, but Tilly and Kirk are. They're in you know fast track command training. They're both yes curious. You know, they both want to go where no one has gone before. Mitchell just wants to flirt with all the ladies. And, you know, maybe that's unfair, but we don't get to know anything about Mitchell other than he's flirting with a bunch of ladies and specifically is not an intellectual. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, there's definitely a place in Star Trek for the guys who like to fly and shoot. Um, and certainly I'm, I'm sure he would have been a good officer had he been less of a complete and absolute douchebag. Yeah, exactly. I think that... I can imagine a Gary Mitchell who is more like a Riker <laughs> and, right. and, you know, is a great friend and is, is Kirk's wingman where he needs it and, you know, helps him get out of his shell. But 
setting him up and like tricking him into dating a girl is not that. That's a difference. I always thought when he talks about sending the woman we later learn is Carol Marcus Kirk's way, he was just like, that's my friend Jim. He's into this, this and this. He's kind of shy, so be nice to him. Aww. Maybe I, mean, I was No, that's a nice, generous. That's a, I, I like I just, it. I like it. I prefer that headcanon than, you know, whatever that he, like, it could be anything. I like your version better. But I just figure Kirk is a decent guy and therefore Mitchell must have had redeeming qualities. Right. But you compare him to Riker and we know exactly what happens when Riker is given godlike powers. He gives, he tries to use them to help people and then he gives them up. Right. Right. Mitchell is, is just reading the entire internet and becoming an edgelord. <laughs> Mitchell's the original troll. <laughs> the original <laughs> internet troll. And he dies by rocks, so. Yeah, yeah. Rocks fell, should, Mitchell should, died. We should look at this as a, as, a, as a lesson. Don't give up. Keep throwing rocks. <laughs> so this is where I want to bring up. There's a book. It's called Strangers from the Sky by Margaret Wander Banano. It was Oh, that's a 1980s time yes, novel? It is yes. a, it is a, a old-timey tie-in novel. Um but it was I think the first giant Star Trek novel. Ooh. And yes, which just means that it's like twice as long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was giant, you know, so they could like charge an extra $2 or whatever. Right. And so th- I blame this book on why I like the Enterprise episode Carbon Creek so much. Right. Because it's basically the same plot where the Vulcans c- crash on Earth early. Okay. And they're found by various 20th century humans. It's not the 50s. It's, it's past us. It's, you know, okay. in, in between, like, the apocalypse and, and uh, now, which is yes. kind of the apocalypse, but I was we're pretending it's not. So that's, the, that's one side of the book. And because there's, there's a, it's a giant novel, like I said. There's, mm. like, two storylines. So there's the past storyline with the Vulcans and the humans who don't know who Vulcans are. And then there's the future storyline, which is Captain Kirk's first mission as captain of the Enterprise. Mm. And it, it basically, he fights with Spock. <laughs> and yes. then to prove to Spock that he is correct, he takes a away team to this planet that uh, keeps blinking in and out of existence. And while As on the planet... <laughs> while while on while the away team is down there, of course the planet blinks out of existence, and it <laughs> and it transports of Kirk, Spock, Kelso, Mitchell, and Elizabeth Daner into the past, and they basically like caught because so they become a part of the other their previous storyline the the super vulcan storyline they show up in the cast too and they're like you know kirk is like i have to get history back on track this isn't the way we must have just we must have screwed everything up the truth is that it was two completely unrelated things and (laughs) and it has nothing to do with it so kirk is like doing this whole thing but my point is that it gives all of these characters even kelso like more to do and more of a personality and how all of their relationships sort of intertwine yeah and while i wouldn't necessarily this book has a lot of sort of really horrible messages about mental health and mental health professionals. And so with that caveat, <laughs> like if you are the type of person who, you know, like uh, content warning for institutionalization kind of yes. stuff. So if that's going to put you off, don't read this book. <laughs> but if you can sort of look beyond that to the rest of the story, those parts, like read. those parts are are worth it, and it's definitely helps me and my obsession with Elizabeth Daner. It makes <laughs> Gary Mitchell a not horrible person, 
and it makes Cal so, you know, a cutie pie that I, like, mourn him the most (laughs) after reading that book because he's so adorable and it's just really, really sad. And it has, you know, for people who only watch Star Trek for Spurk, (laughs) there's plenty of (laughs) Spurk. So, 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 so much. With With some McCoy thrown in there for fun, too. Like, they are basically married and... It's very, very homoerotic. (laughs) Speaking of homoeroticism, (laughs) I'm deeply impressed with how, like, the network looked at the cage and they're like, this has potential, but there's too much sex and not enough fighting. And so what Roddenberry went away and produced was this epically homoerotic little drama. (laughs) And obviously that wasn't intentional and it's just homosexuality was invisible to the mainstream audience back then but it really is very impressive and i hope that there are a lot of kirk mitchell shippers out there i think there are i feel like there are i feel like there have to be like it doesn't even compete with kirk spock because kirk spock can come after and spock can logically help kirk through the grieving process right i mean kirk says he's known mitchell for 15 years so that's yeah it's like you know there's plenty of time to have a, re- a long-term relationship previous to Spock. Hmm. Or a series out. of casual hookups. I'm not fussy. <laughs> I mean, obviously, when I was watching the show and they were talking about how they knew each other for 15 years and were besties in the academy, I was like, oh, so Lorca Cornwell, I got you. I also had the same thought i recognize as always that there is an element of monomania here (laughs) so obviously kirk is the cornwell and mitchell is the walker yes definitely (laughs) which works out for my cornwell was one of kirk's mentors yes (laughs) headcanon also do you think elizabeth dana or do you think that cat was already out of out of psychiatry by the time Dana came along. I kind of like the idea of of Elizabeth Dana wanting Kat as her thesis advisor. Oh, nice. I think I even, like, put this as a prompt somewhere in the world, and obviously I just have to write it myself. Like, no one's going to write that for me. That is definitely a a prompt that I need to write. But I think (laughs) I would, I think I could enjoy young Elizabeth Daner coming to middle-aged cat for, Mm. you know, as a specifically academic mentor, not for any sort of Starfleet or command stuff, but Mm. for academics. I think that would be a fun thing to write, especially since it seems to me, and again, they conflate these things, but if I seem, it seems to me that Daner is, Part of her research was ESP and yes. and how going into space might make you more susceptible. Mm. That's, that's the that's the impression I got from her like four lines about it. But you know, like <laughs> I said, I think about Elizabeth Daner a lot, mm. and so I I think I could explore these things and. I, you know, I could probably write an entire giant Star Trek novel about them. <laughs> I will say certainly before certain events of the Disco Season 2 finale, my headcanon was that it was Kat who was responsible for there being a psychiatrist on the Enterprise mm. to, to sort of belatedly study the psychiatry of, of space travel. Xeno psychiatry. Yeah. Yeah. And exopsychiatry and all of those fun things that don't exist yet, but I would totally study if they did. Right. I don't know why, but when you were talking about it, it came to mind. I just wanted to point out that in that book that I mentioned, Strangers from the Sky, Elizabeth Daner's cover name is Sally. And I think that's (laughs) adorable on the part of the author. Yes. Sally Kellerman is the only reason I've ever been tempted to watch the film MASH. MASH, yeah. Obviously, I've watched the entire series, but I've never watched the film. Because great male movies of the 70s don't (laughs) hold much much appeal to me. Really? I know. Why is that? Crazy, crazy. 
I know. I know. It, there's a note here, because we're coming to the end, but there's a note here that says you were often distracted by costuming, makeup, and hair. True story. Okay, so first of all, part of this is that I watched it on CBS All Access, and after the title, it had, in parentheses, remastered. Yes, and I got the remastered HD version on Netflix. Yes, exactly. The remastered HD, and first of all, it was very pretty. In the places yeah, where it was, like clearly they added things that were not there in the 60s like that was flying fun. into the, the galactic barrier that the, was gorgeous it was gorgeous and the very last shot too of the enterprise in mm. space was beautiful it was a beautiful shot and i was just like oh wow like i i'm it, i appreciate i've never been the type who said you need to keep something the way it is i'm sort of pro remastering i guess I can see that. I don't but, really have strong feelings about it. I just like to have the option of either when I choose. That's fair. I, I understand why people don't want to lose the quote-unquote original. I just think it's fun to see how you, you know, I like it. I like adding things and playing with things 20 years later. It's very fun to me. My only problem with the remasters is that they really highlight how poorly made a lot of the costumes are. Right, so. pick the makeup <laughs> is. And I think that might be what you're getting to. Exactly. So, the colors all pop. But mm. the makeup, like Spock, was the yellowest it... yellow man I have oh, ever seen. No! And it was, it was a problem. <laughs> I, was, I was disturbed. He was practically in yellow face, and I was not comfortable with it. Exactly. I was very uncomfortable with how close to actual... It's hard enough to watch original series Klingons when they are so clearly in blackface, and yeah. Gary's hair was really hilariously distracting. Like, they painted... it white to make him look because he was because he's becoming an intellectual he was also losing his hair like it was it was so ridiculous it was to show that he's aging as he's overusing his powers but yeah i guess someone's gone through his (laughs) rubbed white out through his temples that's exactly what it looks like it looks like i just finished watching the hot zone the national geographic um miniseries the adaptation of the famous book about how america is completely not prepared for any kind of major major viral outbreak really spoilers shock yeah i know (laughs) um but it has james darcy and he he's very handsome uh but he is, is his regular age in the flashbacks to the 70s and the discovery of Ebola. Mm. And then in the 80s, he <laughs> has this fantastic sort of silver fox temple action. And it's very attractive. And it's also so much better than what they did with Gary Mitchell, Gary know, 50, Mitchell. 50 it's, years it's, ago. It's, a, whew, it's, it's very unfair to compare the 1966 with uh 2019 oh yes it is is very unfair and also i'm sure that in the sd version it's not as obvious i certainly don't even remember noticing it in the past right the other things that okay so there are no red shirts they all of the security and engineering people were in beige (laughs) which i couldn't stop laughing (laughs) because that again was like so 70s it was just like oh my gosh this color only exists in 1967 like you can't (laughs) find that color anymore it's not a thing it was just very 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 beige and it was awful like of course they they went to red because yeah so bad it was also it was not different enough from the command so no really especially in background scenes couldn't tell what people were supposed to be like the blue was super blue and then everybody else was sort of oatmeal colored and it was yes. just yikes it made me wonder if there was maybe a, a problem with the camera picking up distinctions between colors like how mm. uh, kirk's uniform was always meant to be the green that we see with right. his wraparound shirt but the cu- camera just never picks that up i can imagine that mm. uh the blue was very blue and i liked that sulo was in blue yeah. <laughs> Even though he's never in blue again. But it was because, you know, in The Man Trap, which is like the first show, the first episode that was actually aired. Yes. Sulu is shown as a scientist. He's like a botanist in The Man yeah, Trap. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's true to, true to Sulu. You know, like eventually they decide that he's just going to be the pilot. 
But I, I think if you have George Takei, you want to keep oh, him yeah. on the bridge where people will see him. I absolutely approve of putting George Takei in more and more and more scenes. It was just interesting and fun to have mm. Sulu there. And then the other thing that I want to mention, I, other than that women still got to wear pants. <sighs> and the like good old basically the same thing that the men were wearing pretty much. Whew. I loved the one scene where we see Elizabeth from the back and she's got like a center back zipper. That was yes. very, I was like, how do you even get out of that without help? <laughs> like, okay, I watched <laughs> Macrocosm last week for my blog and I was like, why are these turtlenecks, why do they zip up the back? This is a long-standing Star Trek tradition. <laughs> it was great though. And I, and, and I was like, oh, I definitely have to include that in my... <laughs> In my, mm. in my cosplay because it's so distinctive <laughs> like that but but that's the only difference between the men and the women are the men's arm zip up on the sides because you can see Spock's yeah. uh, green <laughs> zipper in one shot that was like whew. Um, but uh, but the women up the back so that was fun uh, the sick bay robe was <laughs> awful <laughs> I have a lot of opinions about how what people wear in sickbay. Uh, it stems yes. from how much I loved Voyager and how much I love Seska, probably. <laughs> because Seska in her sickbay robe is still like the most beautiful thing that ever happened on Star Trek, other than maybe Uhura. But that was it was very it was like what you can go wear now. If you, if I went to the emergency room, I would think I would be put into basically that, but made out of paper basically, instead yeah. of made out of cloth, like. But it was it was way bad. That was weak. Just all of yeah. sickbay was sort of weird. Yeah, and I did not love the doctor. I'm glad that they got Doctor McCoy. Oh yeah, he was awful. I mean, he he had no personality whatsoever. So I shouldn't really that's, say that's, awful. Yeah. He was just completely unmemorable. Like he it was, was he was not a there. Yeah, he was there. Uh, and this thing is that McCoy is so charming. Like McCoy yes. has more personality than everyone else on the Enterprise. So. Both boys and this guy, who didn't even name, like, are so bland compared to McCoy. Boyce is no McCoy, but he's still better than Piper, because <laughs> he's the guy with the portable martini kit. <laughs> yeah, at least that. At least he is, like, makes a, uh, I remember him. I remember his name. Yeah, yeah. Piper, I do not. Um, but the last thing I want to say about costuming is that in the mm. very first scene, well, Spock and Kirk are playing three-dimensional chess, which also I was like sort of excited to see three-dimensional chess was in the very first yeah. scene. That was kind of cool. That was fun. Because I like those little, we're still in Earth, you know, chess is an ancient game. Yes. But we have progressed to the 22nd century and now we have 3D chess. Like, that's fun. I, they, yeah, those, are the, cool. those are the kind of fun sci-fi things that I really get into. So in behind them, there is a girl, and she's dressed in what looks to me like a cross between like a sailor scout uniform, like schoolgirl yeah. uniform, and like a tennis, <laughs> like what, what, what people wear to play tennis. I loved it. She had great hair. It was hot pink and I was just like everything about this person who was like a random background person who we never see again mm. was awesome it was also super super 60s but like super 60s in this really great way <laughs> and I was like I hope someone in the world cosplays her because that's another thing that I love it's like mm. anybody can be Captain Kirk right but if you <laughs> cosplay as the background girl in yes. in where no man has gone before like that is beautiful niche and i would give you an award i liked that it felt like a callback to the extra in the cage who right. was wearing like a little red top and a tennis skirt yes exactly and I think maybe someone's idea at this time of futuristic <laughs> civilian clothes yeah. was sporting gear I guess and I'm so. into that like I mean I am at this moment wearing athleisure wear <laughs> right yeah I mean you know that there's that thing about 
you know, now that we're all working from home and we, mm. we only see people through our screens, you know, nobody's wearing a bra anymore. Nobody's wearing pants anymore. Definitely everybody's wearing comfy clothes, right? So I like right. this idea of in the future. Yeah. <laughs> you can just be comfortable. <laughs> you can just be like in your athletic wear. I like that. Yeah. That's a that's a cool thing I can get behind. Do you think there are days where Kirk's like, look, the Klingons on the view screen aren't going to see my feet. I'm just going to wear Ugg boots. Yes. 100%. I mean, mm. to be honest, the shoes they wear, like, they're kind of like rain boots. Like, they don't really... I'm sure they were horribly uncomfortable for the actors. Almost like, certainly. Knowing what I know about costuming, they were awful. <laughs> like, I, mm. I guarantee. But... From the screen, they don't look... They look pretty comfortable. They look cozy. And for more Shoe Trek, I recommend the podcast The Delta Flyers and Garrett Wong's uh, anecdotes about his his long search for a pair of shoes, boots that fit on Voyager. Aww. See, like, that's that's what I mean, is that they, they had to have been so uncomfortable, especially for the people in the background. My little tennis girl. Oh, yeah. She was not comfortable in any way but she was cute it was a great look i I guess you don't go into acting to be incredibly comfortable no but what if you could be (laughs) thank you for listening to antimatter pod you can find our show notes at antimatterpod.tumblr.com including links to our social media and credits for our theme music you can also follow us on twitter at at antimatterpod sometimes we post cat pictures and questions for our audience If you like us, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume your podcasts. The more reviews, the easier it is for new listeners to find us and to tell your friends. And join us in two weeks when we'll be talking about the state of new Star Trek in the year of hell that is 2020. It sure is. And to add insult to injury, there's going to be like a a Zoom table reading of Such Sweet Sorrow Part 2. Yeah. Like... (laughs) There are so I do many... not want. There are so many reasons I don't want this, and yet I'm probably gonna watch it. If nothing else to see, if it still kills Cat. Hey, maybe they'll like make a surprise announcement at the end. Surprise! We made a terrible mistake. She's not dead, and Michael Burnham hasn't been erased from history, and we have done some serious thinking and here is the all pe- all people of color all queer cast of strange new worlds whoops that would be cool i like it i don't I'm not, see it happening no i'm no. not i i'm i'm expecting nothing and no. uh, but you know it is what it is we've discussed that i have an optimism problem and in this particular case it's like Gosh, Jane Brooke is doing a lot of official Zoom events right now. That's weird, considering her character was killed off. I wonder if they're building up to announce her return. And it's like, no. It's just that literally no one has anything going on. She's available to say yes to everything. Sadness. Uh.